It's a real pleasure to be here with you today. When I, uh, when I experience Advent and the lead up to Christmas, one of the things that I notice the most are the kids. Um, and I'm, I remember things from our own children's lives that are dear to me as a way to think about the gospel. And uh, I remember when Ezra was about five years old, and he was this tall with big, big, big blonde hair. Uh, he was walking along uh, with me, and we uh, allowed him to just dress up when he felt like it. And so he dressed up in a Superman costume, and we were walking along our neighborhood, and he had five-year-old shoes on in this Superman costume and cape. And we walked along, and everybody knew Superman in five-year-old shoes. Hey, Superman! Hey, he would say. And it was, uh, it, it was a great memory. But as we come to Advent, it's harder to recognize the Son of God in swaddling clothes. What does it mean to look for God in baby clothes? What does it mean to look for him? And so that's what we're, our passage today is an extraordinary place where in Hebrews... Um, Actually, in Hebrews 5, what he says in Hebrews 4 and 5, the uh, author of Hebrews says, this is basic to the faith. He says, it's like, it's like, it's like uh, the milk that babies would drink. They're not even on solid food. What we have to study about who the Son of God is in baby clothes, what that means is profound, and it's profoundly important and basic to what we believe about the gospel. And so that's what we're going to look to at today the Son of God, and how to recognize him. To recognize what God reveals to us in his Son at Advent, what we have to see is that we we need to know some things about God's Son. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at, in the Advent of God's Son, how do we know who he is? And we'll see that God's Son is appointed. He's appointed, he intercedes, and he transforms. So God's Son how we know him. He's appointed, he intercedes, and he transforms. So first, the Son of God was appointed. Look at verse 5 and 6 and verse 10, right? Verse 5 says, appointed by him. Verse 10 clarifies that and says, designated by God. So appointed by God. And verse 6 says, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And verse 10 says it again, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's stuff going on here that was basic to the early Christians and their faith and their culture and what they grew up in that's not basic to us at all. So I'm going to spend some time just doing a little translation for us to try to bring us up to speed for where these readers would have been at. Uh, Okay, appointed by God. There's a difference between being self-exalted and appointed. There's a difference between being self-exalted and appointed. We'll know the Son of God, the author says, by the fact that he's not self-exalted, that he was appointed. Uh, If you look at the new Hunger Games movie, if you watch that, one of the things that comes out very clearly in this second version is that Katniss Everdeen is appointed versus President Snow, who is self-exalted. Appointed rather than self-exalted. In Hebrews 5, 1 through 4, the beginning of uh, what we have printed here in our bulletin, we see that the high priests were selected and appointed to act as mediators between the people of Israel and God. To act as mediators. And they were to represent, the priests were to represent the people in matters related to God. All matters. But specifically, not exclusively, but specifically in offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. And the honor of such an office is given by God alone. 
One must be called by God just as Aaron was. And you can look later if you'd like to write it down. Exodus 28 talks about that. In Leviticus 8 and Numbers 16 through 18, you can see that God appoints his priests. And so in God's son being appointed as high priest, what we see are a couple of things. We see fulfillment. We see fulfillment. The author here quotes some psalms written centuries before. Psalm 2-7, the advent of God's true son, revealed by the father centuries before. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And in quoting this psalm, the author recalls his earlier argument, earlier in, the, in his letter to the, the Christians in this early church that this letter went to. In his earlier argument in chapter 1, the same psalm, 2-7, is taken to affirm the advent. To affirm that in the advent, the absolute supremacy of the Son of God over the whole creation is true. And that includes the angels. You can look at that in chapter 1 of Hebrews. So the true Son of God is God's true son, but he's also God's true high priest. Psalm 110.4 adds the unusual perspective that the Messiah will be what? The Messiah, the son of God, will be a priest forever. Forever. In the order of Melchizedek. Joining these psalm citations together, uh, the author of Hebrews links the idea of Jesus as the son and the high priest. He's the son and the high priest. That's how we'll know him. But it makes it quite clear that his priesthood, Jesus' priesthood, belongs to a different order from that of Aaron or of the Levitical priests. A different order entirely. You see, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. You can read about that in Leviticus Leviticus 16. This was an indication, though, that the high priest was subject to weakness, like the rest of the community, in need of cleansing from sin. But Jesus comes as the true son of God, without sin, and fulfills the role and function of the Jewish priesthood as high priest in what? Not in the order of Aaron, in the order of Melchizedek. It's a different nature of things. The author of Hebrews goes on to talk about this in chapter 7. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Amazing. He begins to open up this character of Melchizedek and points right to Jesus. Says, you see, Melchizedek appears suddenly in that ancient account in Genesis 14 with Abraham. Melchizedek appears suddenly, and for the author of Hebrews, the appearance of Melchizedek points to Jesus' timelessness, his timelessness. You recognize the Son of God by his timelessness. That is, Melchizedek is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. In Aaron's priestly line, the priesthood needed to be transferred to another. Why? Because Aaron died. And since Jesus is the one and only eternal high priest and God's son, there need be no further transference of the priesthood. So that's background information. I know that that's thick, but that was basic to their context, and we need to know that moving forward. What we see here is that in the advent of the gospel, Jesus is appointed not only as God's true son, but as God's true high priest, belonging to a different order than that of Aaron and the Levitical priests. 
that uh, I've referred to that training tool used to train children in the faith over the centuries. And one of the questions there is, who is the redeemer of God's elect? And the answer is, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Now, all of what we've been talking about in this background gets to the point that God came and became one of us to take on our difficulties for us. The Advent points right to that as how we'd know the Son of God. Eugene Peterson did a a really cool translation of the Bible. Uh, It's a paraphrase, but it's really helpful sometimes to see uh, and understand a little bit different in a narrative fashion what's being gotten across by the authors. And so Eugene Peterson puts um, a passage about the advent of Christ this way. This is from uh, his version of John 1, 9 through 15. The life light was the real thing. Every person, every person entering life he brings into light. He was in the world. The world was there through him, and yet the world didn't even notice. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. But whoever did want him, who believed he was who he claimed, and who did who do what he said, he made to be their true selves, their child of God's selves. These are the God begotten, not blood begotten, not flesh begotten, not sex begotten. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, the father like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. John pointed him out and called, this is the one, the one I told you was coming after me, but in fact, he was ahead of me. He has always been ahead of me, has always had the first word. Jesus is appointed to represent you as God's true son, and as God's true high priest. That's one of the ways that you know him in the Advent. What does that mean to our lives? Well, one of the things is that we, like the Israelites, wrestle with our place with God. How are we supposed to represent ourselves to God? One of the things that I took away from Paul Miller's seminar that was so important to me was this fact. He, He pointed out the fact that when we pray, as we've been learning about, when we pray, we self edit We get to something that we don't understand or something that's uncomfortable or something that we don't quite believe about God in the right way and we know that it's not right or or some sort of turmoil we have within us and we self-edit and we edit it out and we present ourselves a certain way to God instead of presenting ourselves as we are. We wrestle with our place with God. And so the Advent means the wrestling stops. Jesus did you wrestling. The God that comes in the clothes of a baby grew up to do the wrestling for you to live the life that you should have lived and die the death that you should have died. So the Son of God was appointed, but also the Son of God intercedes. Look at verses 7 and 8. We know the Son of God by his interceding in prayer, and we know him by his interceding in slavery. Now I'm going to explain that second part. But let's look at uh, prayer first. The content is the advent of the the Son of God. Verse 7, it says, in the days of his flesh. Okay? And so we know him in when he when he was incarnate, when he was here, one of the ways that we know him was by his interceding in prayer, verse 7. So what does it mean? Verse 7 says he offers up prayers and supplications. Now, those are words that you don't understand if you, if you haven't spent a lot of time praying. There were prayers that the church prayed. They prayed through the Psalms. They recited the Psalms. It was the hymn book of God. It was the prayer book of God. There were those kinds of things. But supplication, look, look at the root word. 
You know, it's very similar to the word supply. What do you need? And so to, to ask, to do supplication in prayer is to ask for what you need. And Jesus does that. The Son of God does that. He intercedes in prayer. He offers up prayers and supplications. So that's what he does. But how does he do it? How does he do it? When you pray, do you have the filter that we talk about? Do we have that self-editing thing that goes on? One of the reasons you know the Son of God is because he left that behind. There was no filter. It says instead that with loud cries and tears, he was emotionally present, and he was emotionally um, full as he interceded in prayer for you and for us. So you know what he does. He offers up prayers and supplications. You know how he does it, with loud cries and tears. You know who he prays to. Look at this. This language is profound to the basics of the faith. Remember the milk, the spiritual milk that we're supposed to drink? The basics of the faith says to the one who's able to save him from death. That's going to be important in a moment. To the one who's able to save him from death. That's where his prayers go. Reason his prayer was heard? Because of his reverence. His reverence. When we pray, we often pray lifting up our own needs and going to God as the giver of things. And we're going to him for what he brings rather than going to him for what he is, who he is in and of himself. So we go to him through what we, material things that we think are ours or situational things that we think are ours rather than going to him for the, the beauty and the wonder of who he is and what he's done. Jesus didn't do that. He went with reverence. And uh, that was the reason he was heard in his prayer. And we know him by his interceding in prayer for us. Romans 8 shows this. Romans 8 is a famous place. We've covered that here in the past. Dwayne Davis, I remember he preached a very powerful couple of sermons before he went on to take his call. Romans 8 reads this, Likewise, Jesus' Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So he intercedes for us in prayer, but he also intercedes for us in slavery. Now let me explain this. There's a contrast going on here. We know in verse 8 that there's a contrast. He says he learned obedience through what he suffered. Obedience is the language of a slave. What do I mean? What do I mean? There's a contrast. Although he was a son, he interceded as a slave on our behalf. Look, in another letter to the early Christians in the Bible, one of the main guys Jesus initially sent out to tell people about in Paul, Paul wrote about this kind of son-slave contrast, and it sheds some light on what's going on here. In Paul's letter to an early church in Galatia, he wrote this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you see that? He intercedes for you in his suffering, in his undoing. This baby that came, this God who came and and was dressed in baby's clothes, grew up to take your place so that you could be with him. He intercedes for you. We know the Son of God. 
through his intercession for us in prayer and for his being treated as a slave so that in him we could be treated as those who are free. Liberty. Liberty. Um, one of my favorite uh, pastors and authors lived a long time ago. His name was John Newton. And he wrote a lot of pastoral letters to people. And uh, I've shared this with you before, but it's so poignant that I want to share it again. This is who Jesus is. We know him through his intercession for us. We know him in the great exchange for us. We know him in our place. Newton writes, Jesus holds out for our faith a balm for every wound, a cordial for every discouragement, and a sufficient answer to every objection which sin or Satan can suggest against our peace. If we are guilty, he is our righteousness. If we are sick, he is our infallible physician. If we are weak, helpless, and defenseless, he is the compassionate and faithful shepherd who has taken charge of us and will not suffer anything to disappoint our hopes or separate us from his love. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust and is engaged to guide us by his counsel, support us by his power, and at length to receive us to his glory that we may be with him forever. Friends, how will you recognize God's son this Advent? He's the one who prays for you, who was broken for your brokenness so that you could be made whole. Now look, what does this mean to us in everyday life? What does this mean to us as we count down the days until Christmas and we break into a new year? What does it mean to you personally? I've been here in Philly long enough to know that we wrestle with anyone doing anything for us. We wrestle with that. And yet here is one from whom we have to accept not just something done for us, but everything done on our behalf to secure our relationship with God. Everything's done for us. So we know the Son of God because he's appointed, because he intercedes. But lastly, we know the Son of God because he transforms. He transforms. He transforms. Verse 9, being made perfect. Right? That's resurrection language. We'll talk about that. And he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So let's look for a second. What happened? Jesus was transformed. It says, in being made perfect, Jesus was transformed. What does that mean? What does that mean? In verse 7, it says, to him, remember who Jesus was praying to. He's praying to the Father, praying to Father God. God the Son is praying to God the Father. Also called in verse 7, to him who was able to save him from death. This is resurrection language. When we're talking about him being made perfect, this transformation that happened, we're talking about the temporary and provisional nature of humanity being resurrected, being made permanent, becoming permanent. How does it happen? How did it happen? It says that through, it was through his obedience on his people's behalf. Verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation. Why did it happen? So that they could be transformed. Verse 9 says it saved them from death, eternal salvation, resurrected. It means that he was resurrected, so will you too be resurrected. Just as his, his body died but rose again to move from, from uh, impermanent and not lasting to the permanent and the everlasting, so yours will be too. What's the, uh, what's the result of being saved? What's the result of being saved? Obedience to him. His obedience, taking your place as a slave, enables you to obey God and the gospel and the gospel of freedom and life in a way that is different than what obedience looks like in the world. His obedience 
for them, for us, yields the response of obedience to him. It's not an obedience that can save. He's the source of eternal salvation. It's an obedience instead that flows out of the source. It flows out of the source. Life looks different as a result. Uh, Elizabeth mentioned It's a Wonderful Life in the beginning of worship. I, too, love that movie. We watch it every year, probably a couple times at least. Uh, I cry every time. Yeah, I know. Um, It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy Stewart's character loved people. He loved people in a way that was a sacrifice to him, a cost to him. He loved them, and it was transformative. He lost his hearing to save his brother, and his brother was was able to go on and be a war hero. And he took the beating to save the pharmacist from a depressed misunderstanding. And he gave and he gave and he gave. And as, as we see throughout the movie, people's lives are drastically different because of the love and sacrifice that he showed them. Without that love and sacrifice, their lives are terrible and dark existence. But with that love and sacrifice, their lives are transformed. Friends, how much more will your lives be transformed when you receive the love and sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God, your representative, your high priest? We cannot love and sacrifice for God in a way that would transform us. But in the advent of Jesus, the way you recognize the Son of God is that he sacrificed and loved you. And because of that, you're brought into God's kingdom as ones who not only have been transformed, but are being transformed and will be transformed. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Do you see that in the God that comes in the close of children this Advent? Please do. Please do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you love us so much that you would send your only begotten Son, the only one who could stand in our place, the only one who could represent us, the only one who could be the true high priest, the true son of God. And yet he was treated when he grew and he fulfilled his ministry. He was treated as we should have been treated so that we could be given the rights of the heirs of your kingdom. This Christmas, this Advent, as we approach you, as we live our lives, let us remember the one who was appointed, the one who intercedes, and the one who transforms. We're grateful to you and the good news of your gospel, Lord. It's in Jesus.